folks, it's the Human Pulse, the podcast that takes care of you and really makes sure that you keep your fingers on the pulse for all things hematology and hematology only. And today we are going to dissect follicular lymphoma with Dr. Alan Skarbnik at Novant Health, the director of the CLL, the lymphoma program in the cellular therapy. I have known Alan for a long time, an amazing clinician, a thoughtful investigator, a clinical trialist, and really a wonderful human being. But what's so unique about Alan is that he takes care of patients like no other. And, you know, patients are at the center of everything that he does. And this is really amazing. But I gave him a very difficult task, which is follicular lymphoma. How do we manage follicular lymphoma? So I'm very honored and pleased to have Dr. Alan Skarbnik on today's podcast, The Hemonk Pulse, the podcast that brings you all things hematology. Tell listeners uh, who you are. I'm Alan Skarbnik. Thank you for inviting me. I am the director of the Lymphoma and CLL program and of the Immunifactor uh, Cell therapeutics program at Novant Health in Charlotte. We, we have a program that you know goes all over North Carolina, but I'm, I'm, I'm based in Charlotte mainly. I am uh, your friend. I've been uh, in a number of your podcasts and it's, I think we're still friends. Yeah, yeah, uh, we're still. Uh, but you know, you know, right. Alan, this is your side gig because your real job is you're a musician and a cook, I believe. I, I am a musician, yes, and a cook, an amateur musician, amateur cook. Yeah, uh, and, and and almost professional griller, I, I like to say. But I yes. do like your uh, the pictures of the things you grill. I like those. But listen, let me. I'm going to share with you a story that is actually a good start to what we're going to talk about. So when I was a first year fellow, mm. long time ago, I was doing the lymphoma clinic, just getting to learn lymphoma a little bit, and I was seeing. Uh, I was trying to learn about low grade lymphoma, indolent lymphoma, and I was seeing this patient with follicular lymphoma at the time with my attending, and she was teaching me, and she said, you know. What's challenging about follicular lymphoma is when you talk to patients about therapy, it's almost you're talking about the buffet of treatments because you can really go from no treatment at all to allogeneic transplant and autologous transplant and everything in between. So I have to say, it's always been one of these diseases that I followed closely, even I left academic medicine because... I think it's there are certain situations where it's a very easy decision when it comes to therapy, and there are scenarios where it's really very challenging. So what I've tasked you with today is to simplify to the masses the approach to this complexity for liquid lymphoma. So no pressure, because I'm looking forward to learning death. from you. I'm looking forward to learning from you. I don't think you're going to learn much from me because, you know, anything different in your learning fellowship, because it's, it, it is that, I mean, it's, it's, it's fortunately one of the indolent diseases that we do have good data on and we have good studies on, you know, and I think that a lot of the other lymphomas, they're indolent, B-cell lymphomas, they, you know, transfer a lot of what we know in follicular lymphoma into treating those, you know, using health criteria, for instance, to treat other kinds of lymphoma that are still indolent and uh, don't really fit uh, the bill. Uh, but it, it is a very common lymphoma. It's the second most common lymphoma. It's the most common indolent uh, lymphoma there is. 
the fortunate one that we we have good amount of data on, on how to treat, when to treat, and things like that. So let let's start with the idea. Like in order to help listeners understand the approach to this disease, I like to think of segmenting the uh, patient population. So we're mm -hmm. going to start with the frontline therapy. Sure. And I think in frontline therapy, I wanted to think of a phenotype of a patient that is younger. So let's say okay. in their 50s, and then a patient that is older, maybe 75 plus, they walk into your clinic, they okay. have follicular lymphoma, indolent disease, and you're sure of the diagnosis. So let's okay. see what you're going to approach. Okay. So Reem, before go into those phenotypes, I think you've got to look into the disease itself. It's a very heterogeneous disease, biologically, clinically. It manifests different in different people. We do know a number of driver mutations right now that are present, and they do impact the prognosis of the disease, even though with very few exceptions, they don't really play a role in, in treatment selection. Well, EZH2 is the most important one. You third, fourth line of therapy, we're going to decide what we're going to do, but you do understand there's variability in the diagnosis. And not only that, like histologically, when you look at, at the disease, you know, with the older, more classic classification, grade one, two, three, eight, three B, uh, a disease that's changing now with the new WGO classification or lymphomas, the nomenclature is going to be a little different there. Uh, but you have all the way people who have, you know, very low aggressive phenotype, very indolent phenotype under the microscope, clinically, biologically, molecularly. And you have people who have an indolent disease, but with a more aggressive phenotype that's almost a high-grade lymphoma. And, you know, we need to discern those patients because they should be treated to some extent differently, right? And the second thing, well, the first thing probably is the second. The first thing is how, you know, who the patient is, right? As you pointed, is there a young person, an older person? What are comorbidities, goals of care, goals of treatment? Because it's a long conversation, everything comes into play, right? You know, 50, 70, I think the front line is not too, too different between those patients based on age if they can tolerate chemo, right? I think the main differences there will be on how the disease presents itself. So in general, for most patients who do need treatment, which is not necessarily the majority of patients right away, you know, um, and the majority of patients need treatment for advanced disease. So let's back up a little bit here. So uh, most patients present with advanced stage disease, stage three or four disease, it's majority of patients. And as a rule of thumb, this is not curable, right? It's an indolent disease, it's advanced stage. We, we generally cannot get rid of it and never coming back. On the other hand, the, you know, less than a quarter, about a fifth of patients who present with early stage disease, if it is localized, that those are the patients that we should treat with a curative intent, right? And generally the, the treatment with a curative intent is radiation therapy based. Uh, so particularly those patients have like one single lymph node chain or you know, two lymph node, node chains that can be within the same field of radiation. Um, we can treat with, with curative intent, uh, even in the absence of symptoms, because you know these patients may be cured. Sometimes they're not, but they, they may be cured. The patients with the advanced stage disease, then we need to define when treatment will be a benefit for those patients. And it's not always the case, right? So we do have the GALF criteria that um, the certain patients who would benefit from treatment when it's time to treat those patients when it's adequate, right? And those patients who actually do not meet those criteria, generally they, they should not be treated, right? Because you're gonna be buying more side effects than clinical benefit for these patients. 
you know, as it is in CLL, I think the most pressing uh, criteria for treatment is symptoms, right? More than what the size is of your lymph node on the CAT scan or how many lymph nodes you have in CAT scans, is the patient symptomatic or not? Those are kind of more hard criteria. I think the others are a little bit softer, right? Oh, you have three different nodal sites with lymph nodes that are at least three centimeters in size. You know, if I have a patient who has like a 3.1, 3, 3 centimeter, yeah, and they are completely yeah. asymptomatic, these are patients that in general have a conversation and say, yeah. hey, do you want to wait a little longer? Let's look at yeah. it again in a couple of months. Let's see how it changes. If they're like, no, no, I really want to be treated right now, that's a different situation. But in general, people want to wait a little longer. Mm -hmm. You know, so bulky disease, leukemic phase, things like that are a little more, you know, more in terms of treating, but a lot of the spectrums like cytopenias, they're a little soft there, but the patients are not symptomatic. So anyway, you got to put all of that and decide the patient needs treatment and uh, it is an advanced stage disease. So what we're going to use in the majority of patients, I use bendamustine rituximab, unless I do have concerns for transformation uh, of disease, which, you know, Lots of times the patient has a lot of disease in multiple sites that are not necessarily easy to access. You have disparity on the PET scan. Uh, you know, we have a site that's an SUV of eight, and then you have a site that's an SUV of 30, and uh, you biopsy that site, it's bulky, but you only can get a core because it's internal and you cannot do an excisional but biopsy. For liquid lymphoma, it's, it's pretty evident. PET, I mean, they really- It is, it is, it is. My point is discrepancy. Right. Yeah, if I you see. have a bunch of sites that are around the same avidity and you have a site that's completely out of whack, right? And you're concerned there may be a process of transformation in that site, even though you cannot prove, but you know, oh, a patient has a high LDH, has a site that's discrepant from other sites, I cannot get enough tissue to prove that, but you know, they have a higher KI67 in that site, you know, it's like 60, 70% care, 67. They don't have the exact definition of a 3B or even a transformed disease. Those are the patients I, I do consider giving our unantracycline based uh, treatment instead with, with our child, but they're, they're, they're few, few and far between. Most of the patients I will give Bendamust and Rituximab as the frontline therapy of choice for patients who would tolerate a chemo. And you, right? you would do that in the older and the younger. Yes, uh, if they can the yes. plus rituxin. Yes, if they can tolerate chemotherapy, that's usually my go-to uh, in the frontline setting. If it's a patient who is much older, and I'm only doing this for palliation, and um, you know, concerned with tolerability of chemotherapy, and I just want the symptoms to be controlled, I can't single agent rituximab in those patients, right. just to you know, give them some relief. But if I'm actually treating and I want to prolong the effects and potentially survival, I would use a chemotherapy in the front line. I can use Rav Rituxin. It's not approved yet in the front line, but there is data, you know, from, from relevance showing that it works. That's Revlimid, lenalidomide plus Rituximab. Plus Rituximab, yes. And, uh, you know, patients tolerate that and they have control of disease. And if they don't want chemo, you know, sometimes it's an option, but it is off-label in the front line. And, uh, you know, we need to, we need to sometimes go through some, some so rea realistically speaking, what I heard you say is bendamustine plus rituxin for the majority of patients, if there's some concern about transformation, 
you would consider RCHAP uh, mm -hmm. as a frontline therapy. Mm -hmm. Are you a believer in the need? Now, you gave the therapy, your patient is going to ask. Yeah, I mean, because I want to yeah. go into real life setting afterwards, but obviously, before yeah. we get there, you know, when I was seeing patients, actually, I was doing a lot of maintenance, but with time, mm -hmm. I, I started really questioning whether I was doing the right thing or not. Yeah, I used to. I used a fellowship. I used to do maintenance like, for a couple of years. Just after I graduated, I was an advocate for that. I think that, you know, when you start treating a, a, a number of patients, you start seeing that the benefits are not quite there and the risks are higher than the benefits. So I'll start with most of the data with, 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 with maintenance rituxin is after RCHOP, not really after bendorituxin. Um, and, you know, we've had long follow-up. It only, it only improves PFS. It doesn't improve survival. If you were at a time that I don't have a good second-line therapy for these patients, you know, and it's not what we're then I'll, I'll say, hey, you know, perhaps if we keep these patients without active disease for, for a while, it's a two-year maintenance, right? It's not forever. Uh, but you can keep the patients without disease mm -hmm. for longer. They don't, you know, they're going to face an aggressive therapy afterward. But that's not the case. We do have good, well-tolerated treatments for the second-line therapy um and uh, so in the absence of a survival improvement i personally don't, don't see a lot of benefit of doing this on the other hand these patients get more infections okay uh band of mustin particularly is tremendously myelosuppressive uh it is a myotoxic therapy you're going to be adding rituximab longer these patients tend to have longer prolonged right. right. cytopenias uh, and with COVID, you know, it does decrease the, the efficacy of vaccinations. It does increase the risk of, a, you know, worse infection. And I, I, I don't believe is adequate and I don't believe right. it brings benefits to the patient. There are a number of people who do it. There's a number of people. There's a, there are certainly patients who want that feeling that my disease is controlled for a longer period of time. It is a discussion I have with them. I don't offer necessarily but i say hey this is a possibility this is why i i don't recommend doing it but you know we should have an honest discussion here sure. where the pros and cons are i mean it's, i wouldn't withhold that information I, I generally discuss it but i don't recommend it and most of my patients decide not to go through maybe because of my own bias but you know no I but i think it's it's fair it's a decision with between the with and the patient now I want to move into relapse disease, but I wanted okay. to think uh, there are two types of relapse disease in follicular lymphoma, as you and I know. There are the folks that relapse early, mm -hmm. and there are the folks who they go five, six, seven years, and you're doing so well before they have any issues. Yes. So let's start maybe with the easier one, I guess. Uh, I don't know if it's an easier one. Relapse. I think yeah. they're both maybe tough. Uh, you pick and choose. Take me through what you would do. You finish the patient. You know, mm -hmm. two years later or 18 months later, they have relapsed disease that requires therapy versus mm -hmm. somebody five, six years down the road. Sure. Uh, I think to start with is what we do at the end of the initial therapy. I think it's important to underline that these patients deserve a PET scan at the end of treatment. It's, 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 it's you know, a better predictor. Uh, and if you have a PET CR at the end of treatment and you do have a recurrence or progression, Within the first two years after having a metabolic complete response, uh, it, it is more concerning, right? You know, I, I don't think at this in this era CT scan um, uh, for for you can do it interim, that's fine. But at the end of treatment, especially in the PET, a PET CT, I think the CT scan alone does not give you 
the complete information does not doesn't you may miss a number of uh, metabolically active disease if the lymph nodes you know became smaller but it still may be uh, metabolically active on the on the PET CT so I think those patients should be evaluated with an endotreatment PET so we do know that progression of disease within uh, 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 the first 24 months is very famous very well side paid for the lymph care study uh, it's it, these patients have a very much poorer prognosis, right? These patients have a higher mortality in comparison to patients who present a progression beyond 24 months of initial therapy, particularly patients who had an initial treatment with bendarituxin with an early relapse, they have a much higher chance of transformation of disease at that point, um, higher than the patients who got our CHOP and, and had a progression uh, within the first 24 months. So, you know, Treating most patients with BR, an early recurrence is concerning uh, uh, to me. And then at that point, that's a little bit when the fitness of the patient becomes a little bit more important. So I, I tend to, in a young patient who is fit and he has an early relapse of disease, my opinion is to give him a salvage chemo followed by an autologous transplant at that point. Uh, you know, I you think would do we, like a rice ESHAP kind of thing. Not necessarily. If the patient got BR the front line and can do our chop on the second line, and if they get into it doesn't need, they never got into cycle, right? Uh, you know, I can do our chop, I, you know, I can start with that and then escalate uh, if I need to. I don't necessarily think they need a platinum based treatment. Unless they got our top in the front line, I mean, right. those are the patients where I reserve a plenum-based treatment at that point. I just need to get them into remission to do a transplant. I'm, I'm relying more on the on the. And you do a more, you think autologous transplant like you would do for large cell lymphoma here? Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't, I haven't done an allogeneic transplant for follicular lymphoma in in a long time. So early uh, early relapse, salvage therapy, followed by autologous transplant. If you think the patient is fit, yes. If the patient is not fit, you know, if it's an early relapse, you can try and do uh, R-square, rituximab, and, and lenalidomide, Revlimid in the second-line setting. Uh, there is some efficacy there. I, I am concerned in a lot of times if this patient is going to have a longevity of response. But, you know, if I'm concerned about the fitness, I, I think right. they deserve to have that regimen uh, tried first before I go to other types of, of chemotherapy that, you know, be, may be... Those are the patients that may need a platinum with like a Gemox, for instance, or, right. or without right. transplant. But you know, if they, if I'm concerned about tolerability, I wouldn't go in that direction. I usually would go with the R square. Now, going again a little off label here. If it's a patient who I don't think you will tolerate a transplant, but they may still be candidates for CAR T, and it's an early relapse, uh, particularly they got BR the front line. I do have a discussion about CAR-T with them. Uh, you know, CAR-T is approved for third line for follicular lymphoma, not, not second yet. But, you know, there are some cases that I I, I don't think we should wait to get to third line. Now, do we have, do we have approved CAR-T for follicular lymphoma or this on yes. trial? Yes, 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 yes. Yes, CAR-T is approved. Okay. Yeah, yeah, CAR-T is, is, well, CAR-T is the one I, I, I use the most. Uh, in, in my practice, but uh, there are studies with, with with the other compounds with uh, okay uh, with with follicular lymphoma. But anyway, this these are the patients who may not tolerate 
a transplant, but uh, but they may they may tolerate CAR T. Now you've got and, some patients who may not tolerate either, though, uh, Alan. And I think for these, you know, they, they have. What's your sense about some of these? Um, there are some other therapies that have been recently approved uh, uh, for relapse follicular lymphoma uh, and indolent lymphoma. And then I want to go through the patients mm -hmm. who have had a long-term remission, like a yeah. longer-term remission. I think it depends on you know what uh, what we can do. You know what access do you have? Right. If we go by by what is the FDA label approval, mm -hmm. uh, CAR T is approved a third line. A bispecific mosinetuzumab uh, is uh, is approved recently as a third line therapy. Uh, Tezometastat is approved as a third line therapy. If you have an easy H2 mutation, and if you don't, if you have no option, that's kind of how the the label reads, you still have copanlisib for those patients, the P3 kinase inhibitor, you still have ravrituximab, uh, you still have chemotherapy for those patients. There's a number of options there on, on how to use it. So a patient cannot tolerate RT or transplant and is an early relapse in the second line, I generally go to the, the lenalidomide rituximab uh, pathway. Uh, for those patients. And then, you know, we'll see how long that kind of holds them at bay. It tends not to be a long time. It tends to be a short, uh, right, short right, relapse right. after that, unfortunately. You know, so that's, that's, that's yeah. pretty, I mean, that, that's pretty good. I mean, at least there are options for these patients. I mean, I can tell you, I recall, you know, there are options beyond the gem ox, which was really my go-to regimen, frankly, but I mean, mm -hmm. at least now there are other options. But now you have a patient, let's say, who at least whoever, pick and choose the duration of remission. But you know these patients who've gone like, you know, for five years, they're doing okay. And and now you think it's time to treat. So they've had this longer duration of remission. Back in the day, Alan, when I was seeing patients, I would always go back to the same regimen I was using with the assumption it worked for a long time, may as well use it. But mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. I got burnt out a little bit with bendamustine. I've done this a couple of times. And really, the counts go down, and they know. can't go up. And I marry the patient. There's no MDS. They just don't recover the neutrophils. Yes. And it's crazy. So I stopped doing that, obviously. But what what are you doing now? So for the for the late relapse, yeah. You mean yeah? Well, I think it depends. Again, if it's a patient who had you know a ten year remission with bendamustine, I I. I, I, I do feel to some extent inclined. To, to repeat the treatment, but I do I do a very thorough evaluation of those patients. I do, those are patients I do a bone marrow biopsy, make sure nothing is going on there. I do, I do, I do a next generation sequencing my white panel. I want to make sure these patients don't have CHIP. You know, they're going to be pushed, induced by the bendamustine, right? And they tend to be older. I want to make sure these patients don't have an underlying uh, uh, myeloid condition that I may throw over the edge if I rechallenge them with benamustine, number one. And number two, I want to see what's their reserve. I mean, I do not want a severely myelotoxic regimen that may treat the disease, but then they are, you know, hindered by the prolonged cytopenias and infections that may come with it down the road. There was but a do, point- do you, that... do you ever consider autologous transplant I think this was always the toughest question I've always faced in, in practice with like tumor board. You get this patient three, four, five years out. They're young, they can tolerate transplant. 
do you take them to transplant and do salvage or you say i'm going to give you the art chop for example or whatever mm -hmm. it is and gonna sit tight no i i no no i used okay. to i think now we have i, I mean patients who have a long remission uh in i i tend to give them r squared at that point i mean that's right. that's what i use the most it's very good data it's well tolerated treatment um, you know, it's it's this, the the safety is there. It's good. We know the drugs. We love the drugs. Patients do well. It's you know, not too intensive. But again, it's going to depend how the disease presents itself right, right. at that time. It's the same conundrum as the frontline setting. You know, does it present itself as a super aggressive disease? Am I concerned for a process of transformation? If so, yes. Those are the patients that are going to do chemo and then auto. Uh, you know, in that setting. Uh, if not, which is the most common scenario, then that's those are the patients I'm going to use R squared. Those are the right patients right. for that. Right? I mean, it's a relapse disease. It's beyond 24 months. You're doing okay. The disease is not super aggressive. They they they, they do okay with with that regimen. So I think late relapses are less challenging than early relapses. Early relapses do concern me a lot because you know the the, the disease-related mortality is so high that I, I want to give the patient something more aggressive at that point to prevent um, you know having that outcome. Obviously, the problem is that we don't know what the right therapy is there, right? You know, at that point, there's no comparator data right now. Do we chemo or not? Do we do CAR T at that point? I mean. If you if, then you're gonna start extrapolating stuff, right? If you start extrapolating data from diffuse like lymphoma, where early relapse you do better with CAR T than a salvage chemo and auto, you know, right. same right. lineage, right. same target, same. You know, but, it's like you got I don't know. I don't know the answer. But you know, when you're seeing those patients, you start extra, extrapolating that information to some extent. I think. I think the bottom line for early relapse is. I think we need to be more aggressive with early relapse yeah. and late relapse. We don't need to. I think that's yeah. the, the the divider here, yeah. uh, and that's kind of what guides my my therapy choice. This was very 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 helpful. Really, this is was yeah. very simplified, very very helpful. Are we um, done? That's it. No more. No, no. This was very very helpful. We don't want to confuse people. I'll have to say <laughs> that. I guess my last question, uh, and then I'll let you go. But my last question is: any exciting drugs that at least like you're looking forward to that obviously investigational in trials, things that are just really you're interested in looking what's going to, what they're going to show in the next couple of years. Uh, well, I think the bispecifics are, you know, kind of here to stay. I think, you know, just, just to touch on this briefly before I go, I mean, just have a bispecific anti-CD20, anti-CD3 approved for third line in, in follicular lymphoma. Uh, it's it's good. It's well tolerated. It can give it outpatient. You can have CRS. You can have neurotoxicity. I mean, people who are doing CAR T, you can manage that that well. It's not as severe, uh, but you need to have a process to monitor those patients still and hospitalize if needed. But it's a good drug, and it's has easier access than, than CAR T for for most people. And the current current question we have is like, what's the order? Right? Because they're both approved for third line. Or further, do we do CAR T first and by specific later? Do we do by specific first and CAR T later? And that's the challenge we, we don't know the answer to right now. Uh, but it's a very exciting uh, uh, um, class of drugs approved. There are other by specifics in trials that should be approved in the near future. And they have their own kind of different mechanisms. You have sub Q, this one is IV, you have sub Q uh, by specifics that may be approved in the near future. 
um, different level, different levels of toxicity. You know, some you do pretreatment with obinutuzumab, for instance, and you decrease the the, the rates of, of CRS in those patients and even neurotoxicity. So you know, we need to kind of evaluate these drugs as they come along. There are other CAR T products. Uh, they're being evaluated for for follicular lymphoma as well. Uh, not only the ones that we already know. The autologous CAR T's, but there are some studies with allogeneic CAR T, CAR NK cells, teletherapy in general, are things that continue to be studied in lymphomas in general. And I think that's a very interesting path we're going down. I, I think the more we stay away from traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy, the better for our patients. You know, uh, as you really pointed good. out before, repeating cytotoxic chemotherapy in these patients, they lead to very uh, long delayed side effects that may be untoward. I mean, I can tell you how many times I have patients who are transplanted, allogeneic transplant because of secondary MDS or secondary ML from previous cytotoxic chemotherapy that was repeated. So that happens. So kind of staying away from that and have this novel uh, 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 approaches is interesting. Uh, Molecular-driven approaches, we have tezometastat approved for uh, for EZH2, both mutant and wild type, but you know, in terms of response rates, has a better uh, efficacy in uh, in the mutant uh, uh, subgroup. But you know, we're studying all. But, that, but that's actually really an important point you bring up. Mm -hmm. I, I like the idea about the molecularly driven uh, therapy. I. Honestly, think with time we're gonna get there. I mean, the the issue is gonna be sometimes you have targets, you don't have drugs for the targets, uh, yeah. so that's another issue. The other thing, obviously, sometimes you have targets and you have drugs for the targets, but it's not really clear whether the target is the quote unquote driver. That's really like you know. I, but I think your point is well taken. If you really have a driver mutation or a driver mm -hmm. gene that's really the gene, the oncogene that's driving the growth of the cell, and you have a drug against it, the hope is it may not work forever, but at least it should hopefully yeah. work and help patients. So, yeah, it's a hard filter though. Like follicular lymphoma is a classic example. BCL two inhibitors <laughs> work right. that well. Yeah. In a disease that you know, the hallmark of disease is BCL two, you know, translocation. So it's 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 you interesting, have, isn't it? Yeah, right. You may have <laughs> have a molecular abnormality there that you can block it and does doesn't do a lot. It so, works in CLL and doesn't work in follicular lymphoma, like sure. Yeah, it's, it, you know, it's 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 very interesting. But anyway, those are the things I'm excited about. Uh, this is a very this is a very broad subject. You I know, but you. Time. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not gonna hold. You know. It's okay. I'll forgive you. But uh, uh, this is something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is something that we can spend a lot of time. Well, I know. I mean, I think follicular lymphoma is a very, very broad topic. But I really wanted to hit just the high notes, right? I yeah. mean, the idea is, I think, I think what we hit on is broadly. For the majority of patients, this appears to be a very reasonable strategy, but this does not take away from the nuances, but you have to really assess the patient, assess the disease. You know, this is, that's why I hate algorithms and the grids, because mm -hmm. certain things just don't fit in a grid. And I think uh, what you covered was very interesting in general, and obviously there are always exceptions to the rule, but this was very, very helpful. I really appreciate you spending some time with the Hemang Pulse. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me. I'll come back anytime you want me to. Oh, you will. Have a good day. <laughs>